97X, The Future of Rock and Roll with Sicilian Vespers and Bacala. The Fix was Saved by Zero. And we got things started off with the Happy Monday's new song, Bob's Your Uncle. Speaking of uncles, how you doing? I'm Dave, the Uncle Fester of Modern Rock. Later on, I'll be lighting up the studio with a light bulb in my mouth. And we'll have Lurch stop by with his epic spoken word poem, You Rang. Let's see if the Sicilian Vespers can stay atop the People's Choice Countdown for 15 years straight Dave, tonight at 6.30 Dave, Dave, here at 97X, Dave, the future rock and roll. No, yeah? Dave, Dave. I, I do? Yeah. That, that light bulb looks good on you, and I can't yeah. wait to hear Lurch, but we're not on 97X anymore, sadly. We're just doing a podcast. I'm in my party dungeon, and you're in your palatial estate, yeah. and... Sicilian Vespers probably just retired as champs of the People's Choice Countdown. I mean, it's a classic. It is. It is. Everybody loves it, including, you know, who loves it more than anybody else would be the esteemed co owners of 97X, Doug and Linda Baylog. This is our white whale. They are on the line. Doug and Linda, thanks for joining us. Hey, it is great to be here, guys. It is great to be here. Who are these guys, by the way? <laughs> we, we are in inside the building here, looking out, and I can I can see the Phillips Twenty Seven from here. Oh, nice! Right across the street. Can you go over and get me a little Debbie snack cake, if you don't mind? Uh, fudge yeah, brownie, yeah, some bacon and toast. <laughs> well, b- before we get too deep into this, Susan driver's favorite. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Let's let's establish some ground rules, Dave. Um, the yeah. two Bella Lugosi's length that's out the window for yeah. this one. We're we're going gotcha. deep. Doug and Linda going long. Thanks so much for joining us, Doug and Linda. And we just want to like first of all, if you could, we want to start by saying, you know, like, how did you buy the station? When did you buy the station? And more importantly, why did you buy the station? <laughs> Maybe that last question is like a book. Uh, no. <laughs> Go ahead, Linda. Why don't you Why don't you give a quick rundown and I'll. No, 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 no. That's yours. This This whole thing was Doug's idea. I want you to know. I don't mean this today. I mean the whole radio station thing. So it's... there, Doug. Okay. So um, going back into the way back machine, we we took over the station, and I just happened to know because it's staring me in the face. July twenty first, nineteen eighty one, at midnight. So that was sort of the beginning. And what triggered it was we had been working in Chicago, and both of us, Linda in advertising and me in the television business. And we made an observation. We had really fun, you know, interesting careers. And we realized that about mid, mid-70s, we bought a place up in two hours away around Lake Geneva, Lake Place. And we found in the next year we spent 40-some weekends up in this little town that was quiet and peaceful, and it was a much, much different than the city life. And we kind of talked about it and said, you know, there's something going on out there, and I don't think we're part of it. And we really thought long and hard about maybe it was time for a lifestyle change. So we had almost put together a big television station deal that didn't come to pass, but did get the contract. And so the next thing for us was, okay, we can't afford a television station and we didn't want partners in radio. So we decided that we would take this route of finding a, a nice place to live that had a radio station, which would be diametrically opposed to a business that would 
say, I want to buy a radio station that could make some money and I'll live anywhere. So we rejected Gary, Indiana, but we started to look around at college markets because at least we were savvy enough to think, well, colleges tend to make small communities bigger. They're kind of fun. And there's a lot of young people around and we've always enjoyed that. So that's where we started. We started looking and shopping at, you know, college market radio stations, never had been to Miami, never had been to Oxford. I don't even think I knew about Miami. Maybe Linda did. No. So we were, um, that was sort of it. And it just happened serendipitous that the station was being sold in those days. The federal communication commission had to, made you own a station for three years. So there wasn't this uh, market of selling, trading, buying and carting them around. So you had to stay there three years. And the previous owner was like all the other previous owners losing money. And so he was ready to sell around the three year mark and it uh, became available. We found out about it and we went to Oxford and fell in love with uh, the charm and the bucolic little wonderful land that it is. And, uh, that was that was sort of the beginning and sort of the reason why. Now, when did you move WOXR at the time to 5120 College Corner Pike? And tell us about the transition of just the call letters. Okay, that actually, the OXR happened before, I think, I'm almost sure the previous owner switched the call letter. So when we got there, it was W-O-X-Y FM 97.7. It was called the Amazing FM, which would have been, at least somebody should have challenged them for truth in advertising. <laughs> but uh, so it was, it was at the location under the famous Burger Chef and on High Street. It was W-O-X-Y FM. And then proudly, they, or I guess we started doing the stereo FM, which was a big deal in those days, sort of. So we were there. It was just not a pleasant place. It was down in the basement. There weren't any windows. Every once in a while, the drains would clog up in the restaurant and the Coke syrup would come dripping down on the receptionist's desk where there wasn't a receptionist because nobody could afford one. And uh, we just knew we had to move. We really needed a fresh start. The employees were kind of burned out. There was a lot of talented people, but the former owner was an electrical engineer, you know, who could go to Radio Shack and spend $27 and get some copper wire and electric tape and replace the $2,000 part. And that's sort of some of the things we inherited. So there were a lot of talented people, but we knew we had to turn it into a business first and most likely have all new people in a couple of years and getting out of that place into a place that had windows and maybe a little fresh air was something we thought would be important making the transition. I'm going to guess it happened less than two years later. Tim Myers had that building. He was in the real estate business and he leased us the, as you walk in the right half, and that's how we started, I'd say maybe two years ago, two years after. Wow. Nice move. But you know, you, you missed selling, you know, you could have told the receptionist at the old place. It's like, Hey, you get free soda. Well, but so how did you come up with the, the, the money to buy the station and then shortly thereafter move it 
Did you must have some really good couch cushions? Well, I'm, I'm kind of doing all the talking, but you're doing fine. Linda, Linda always says she's the lady behind the curtain, you know, <laughs> made sure that we were profitable. Yeah, it's fun back there. She did. She did a marvelous <laughs> job. Well, you know, we in Chicago, you know, you know, I always used to we we spoke so much at Miami. I mean, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times and other places too about the adventure and the entrepreneurial part of it and the broadcasting part of it. And so I always, you know, my, my standard intro was true. You know, Linda was summa cum laude from Northwestern and my business partner. And uh, I was the guy who went to Michigan state and drank a lot of beer and was in a fraternity. So, you know, even though she wasn't always around, particularly in the beginning, she was the, the instrumental person that, kept us on a lane that we could stay in business when more was going out than was coming in. And so, um, that was, you know, sort of this, I guess this, the starting point where we, you know, found out what entrepreneurship was about and it wasn't easy. And that may not have answered the question because I veer off on side roads and never come back. Well, it did, and it also proves that Linda has those quad city sensibilities that guided the station through those times. <laughs> well, interestingly, I mean, this is an odd sort of thing. When I was growing up, my mother and dad in Des Moines, Iowa, had an advertising agency together. Now, mom, my mom was the same thing I was initially, which was the one who paid the bills and that kind of stuff. And my dad was out there getting clients and making, you know, commercials of sorts. And so I honestly grew up with a couple doing something very similar to what we decided to do. So that never scared me, which was kind of nice. So anyhow, in Chicago, Linda was uh, a star in the advertising business. She was the first female vice president in account management in the world's fifth largest advertising agency. So she made more than minimum wage. I had started in the, I'd been in television business for 17 years before Oxford and uh, was a founding partner of a television company in 1971 that was entrepreneurial and doomed to fail. And it turned out to be uh, the fastest growing TV company in the 1970s in that particular industry of television. So we had at least a few beans in the jar when we came down there. And again, mm -hmm. prices then were, you know, affordable for, you know, the mom pas or the two pals who loved radio and wanted to buy a station and you still could buy them in a, in a market that had some significance and potential opportunity. You weren't just going to have a station in East Jesus, Idaho with 2,200 people under the signal, but you got to play radio. So there were still some pretty good opportunities. And so that's how we did it. We, we had that, we had the resources to do it. We came down there. Uh, we, probably thought we knew twice as much as we did. We were humbled very quickly, ran out of money, and then began another interesting stage of the station. I think of that as, you know, we really weren't scared when we made the decision to do it, but we got scared later. So it was always there a possibility anyway. Yeah. And then, Linda, if you could, so I always like to say, you know, because like a lot of times they'll say it's there's the, the, the brains and the beauty. So Linda was both the brains <laughs> and the beauty, and Doug was just the brawn. Oh, he was the falcon. He was the brawn. That's true. <laughs> That's a great intro into how we want to find out. We've heard from some other folks 
that were there at the beginnings of the modern rock WOXY. Um, and, and it's funny hearing different angles of what they thought of what you were thinking and Linda was thinking and what they were thinking. Um, you know, what's your memories of suddenly becoming one of the first, I believe, five modern or alternative rock stations in, in the United States? And, and, and I know, I know you'll give me some space here, but one of the things before that is I wanted to give you a sense of the station. I, the line you guys may have heard, but I certainly have used it many times is when we, when we bought the station, it, it had a negative 10 rating. Nobody listened and 10 people in Oxford hated it. Since 1959, there was maybe three or at least four owners that came in. So the community looked at people as carpetbaggers and, you know, two quick stories that, relate to where we were before we made those decisions because they were far down the road. You had to like turn it into a business. As I said, you had to figure out employees that you could bring in and grow with. And so when, when we started, I think it was there, they invited the, in the radio station owner into rotary and I have a new Rotarian. We're just starting in our new business. And one of the third generation family guys who I you know knew by sight, I'm sitting across from, at the luncheon and he looks at me and he said, he said, Doug, you seem like a fine young man, but I think you were crazy to buy that radio station. <laughs> and the other thing that was kind of obvious about what the community thought is that Miami sports for two decades had been at another station for 20 years. That was 20 miles away. So there wasn't much, around the station in those days that people were too interested in. So we had, we had that two or three years. They came in, I think in 84. So he was there when we were still kind of, you know, read, you know, get, getting, getting it together. And, and then the next thing was what you're asking about. And that was, um, you know, that was a big, big time and big thing to do. And, you know, Steve Stenkin was uh, very instrumental and really the reason we had something to think about. Linda and I did not want to walk into a radio station that we didn't enjoy. And we weren't country music listeners and we didn't, you know, why would you want to be the third or fourth classic rock station? So we, um, and there's, I've heard different versions of this, but I'll give you mine. What we did before is we had to find out what the hell to do. And programming the station literally was not the first or second thing. There were just other fundamental things that had to be done. But when we got to that, and before making the decision, we were due, we had a, we formed a rock advisory board. We figured out we might as well talk to the students, find out what's going on. We used to go to the Pizza Hut in the basement. And Linda had a career in knowing how to do market research and surveys and all kinds of branding and things like that. So we were just talking to the students, giving them vinyl and having pizza and Pepsi and asking questions to help us figure out what the hell's going on and what could we do. And one of the things that was sort of a reoccurring theme, and it was almost funny that 20 years later, it was sort of like if you did the same interviews, it would happen again, is that the students were saying, we're not hearing any of that new music. Now, those are mostly the students that were from Chicago because they had XRT, and we're hearing the same songs over and over again. And wouldn't you just know 20 years later, that's sort of what happened again. So we, we were ready to make a decision. And then Steve, we had spent a summer in Los Angeles and he's now working for us. 
And we were talking about, and it sounded interesting, uh, the fact that we left great jobs in Chicago uh, to move to a small market that we never lived in in a business that we had never been in tells you right there we're pretty crazy. So why not do something that a station in Los Angeles was doing and let's see what happens. And we did know we had in those days 70 or 80,000 college students under the signal. So we thought, why not? Go for it. Go for it all. Lose big. But maybe something could happen versus being the third country station that nobody wanted to listen to. Except for lunch you know, for Irma or Tradio. <laughs> and Dr. Demento. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Demento, God, loved that he came to Miami for us, you know, yeah. what a guy. Uh, you know what's interesting now? Um, so you're doing, um, we're doing modern rock and Miami sports. Now it's 2021, mm-hmm. I have satellite radio, and I might be listening to whatever I'm listening to, you know, where I try to get my new music now. And on a Saturday afternoon, they're playing a Baylor football game. So things even 30 years later haven't changed that uh, you there's people still doing sports programming in a rock station or you know music based station format yeah. which which is kind of interesting. Mm. Well I think people are you know radio right now is is a complete in my opinion a completely different business and I think certainly asset values are way down I think making money is re- is much harder in a number of ways. And uh, so you got to do what you got to do. I know one of the, I'll tell you one of the, you didn't ask, but I'm going to ask myself. Uh, one of the biggest decisions we made and one of the hardest in that free format days was when you're losing money and the two high school coaches come in every season from Telewanda and want you to broadcast their games. And we never broadcast high school sports. And Linda and I felt that if we, you know, there was a formula in those days, successful small market radio was high school sports, uh, tradio, lunch with Irma, school lunches, and going to the council meetings and that kind of stuff. And, you know, and you you could make a living. It just sounded not particularly interesting to us at all. So we did not do high school sports because we knew if we did that, then we would be an Oxford radio station. You know, you guys, if you talk about a small market, you know, that one of the things that we tried to establish in the whole mindset there was, you know, we were not a small market radio station. We were a radio station that was located in a small market. And people don't listen to a radio station based on what, where it's located. It, they listen for what it can do. And so we had, we thought, if we could build that into the consciousness. Now, in the beginning, there was not a lot of you know, warm and fuzzy articles and applause and everything else. And so you have to grind your way through uh, with the determination to get to a certain point. And then that point came when we, and then even when it happened, even though we knew we were getting listeners, we still weren't making any money. But we thought that this was a sign of things that might come. And then there was another thing, which I'll get into or not, if you ask. But then, you know, we, hit, we, we really hit the wall. And that would have been shortly after the format. So, anyhow, that's kind of that. 
Interesting. Well, thank you, you can for tell not I'm doing a right brainer, right? <laughs> thank you for not doing high school football and thank you on behalf of all the folks that that worked at 97X because it definitely was like a labor of love. Like we love the music and obviously uh-huh. you tapped into that, you know, a small group of dedicated listeners within Cincinnati and Dayton and Oxford that love that type of music. Well, we we defined and I think it's, you know, it also set the tone, but it, it, you know, the, one of the things when you own a business, you can look in the mirror and it reflects your values. That station reflected our values about how to work with people, how to treat people, how to learn, how to teach, how to come out of it. Not, we just didn't walk in the door every day and think about how we could make more money. And I suppose most bankers would say, you guys are the dummies, but it was really, and it, I don't, it never really changed. It was always a 51% art, 49% commerce. And Linda and I had to figure out how to keep it in the black once we got into that. And so there was, uh, you know, there was a feeling about, uh, as you say, and then everybody that was attracted to it, even in the early days, they, they brought a certain passion of, you know, I'd say by the time it was the 686, maybe around the Jetson era, but then then the passion started to become more intense. And then they got at a level where they they self-built an ethos inside the building. And it was a real special thing to be a part of. It was a special thing to see. And and it happened. And it, it was because of what all the people did. One, Because most people, you know, you have to remember, Linda and I came in at 39 and 35 and we left it 62 and 58. So everybody in the building, sorry, Bake, you weren't one of them, but everybody in the building was pretty much 21 to 35. So everybody stayed the same age, and Linda and I kept getting older. But what we saw happen was this, uh, I sort of saw it in the television business on a larger scale, but when you're the underdog and when you believe into some, something and you have passion for it and you attract a handful of people who buy into that and believe into it, there's, there's not much you can't do. So, you know, all the things that happened didn't happen by accident, but there was obviously moments of serendipity, like the Steve Rosen article that might have been the most important thing to happen to the station in the first 10 years. So, anyhow. Well, okay, you baited me. Uh, I a little bit know about about that story, but there's probably of our 12 listeners of this podcast, 10 might not know about that story. So can you explain a little bit of that? Well, I, I, I actually, we actually got about 100 people that we paid to listen. So your numbers are going to go up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So in June, no, in June, and, you know, we were, we had, you know, we, it was Labor Day of 83. Um, when we made the transition. Now, he, we had been, trans, you know, so they, they were, I remember somebody said, well, I don't remember, any, and that might have been Danny Craig, but somebody said, well, I don't remember, you know, doing, you know, surveys or whatever. That was like, that was done way before, the year before, because we were still looking for, then the Stenkin situation relative to his experience listening to K-Rock happened. And then... We started, uh, you know, moving in that direction by playing some of that music. So it just didn't all go from black and white on Memorial Day weekend or Labor Day weekend, I'm sorry, of 83. So 
that was like the official launch, but we, it had been been salting it in. We used the phrase in the early days when we were, I don't want to say clueless, but we were sure looking for the one-eyed man in the land of the blind in those days. And we would, we referred to our station then as, as the day gets older, we get younger. Cause we knew we had the college market and, you know, old farts don't listen to the radio much at night. So we had, you know, we, we literally inherited, we had a news director, we had a sports director. It was a different kind of radio. It was more of a small market radio station. And they, as they say, there were some really, really cool people. That's sort of what it was. You, know? you, you did go on a side road there, though, Doug. Tell yeah, us about the Steve Rosen article. Okay, yes, 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 right. I was on that road <laughs> in an old panel truck. Um, it was June of uh, 85. And the reason it was so important is everybody in the building, forget, forget the fact that we weren't making money, but everybody was starting to do something and they were getting some feedback from their peers or at the record stores or whatever. And it's nice to have someone else from a distance with some credibility pat you on the head and say, nice job. You guys are doing something cool. And it turned out that it was, you know, when they had the Sunday magazines, you know, you get the cover on it, you get five or six pages and pictures and it really, really helped everyone realize that yes, we're working hard and we're doing something we believe in. That's really weird because everything we play isn't on the radio anywhere else. And, you know, when I'm calling on clients and they say, well, what do you play? And I say, well, we play the Sex Pistols, 10,000 Maniacs and Suicidal Tendencies. And here's a 40-year-old guy with a tie saying, that's why I don't buy you. (laughs) Oh, that is a tough sell. (laughs) So the the article was a point where, where it really meant a lot in terms of giving us an emotional momentum inside the building with the people there. And then we, you know, started to build and, and then, and then we did, we used to track the phone calls and it was like, wow, we're doing this. And people are calling from Clifton. We never had anybody call from Clifton and, you know, and Coleraine and Lawrence, you know, all different places. And so that was sort of like where we knew something was going on and it was good, but we had to make the transition to, okay, but the beast needs to be fed. And so that was the part that was really difficult. I remember sitting with Dave Osborne who owned the balcony saloon and uh, uh, the lower half. And this is back in that beginning, but you know, went in to see him and we used to do some back in the beer hunter days. We used to do the beer hunter up in uh, the the balcony saloon. But now Dave, Dave said to me in my first call on him, he said, you know, he said, I like what I like. I like what you're saying. It seemed like you got a good background for this. He said, you know what? I've heard this four times in the last 20 years. Come back in a year. If you do some of the things you say, I'm going to advertise with you all the time. That's the kind of start you had. Oh, and also, the first six months we were there, interest rates went to 21%. So that paints the picture of why we had to get somewhere, and that's why that article helped us, even though it didn't, like Rain Man, didn't help us make any more money. It gave us and emotional, some kind of chemistry that let people know, I think we're on the right track. We just have to be able to be determined and take the pain to get there. 
you, you said something there about selling a station that plays the Sex Pistols, Suicidal Tendencies, you know, all those bands like that. Um, could you and Linda touch base as us as air talent, uh, air personalities, I wouldn't say we're talented, but as air personalities, um, we we didn't realize the hurdles that the sales staff had to go through. Doug being the, the, the front person of that, but the, we've had a few different sales uh, folks over the years at the station selling and, and thinking about it, I think they did a remarkable job. Oh, they did. And, and uh, you know, in the first half, the first slice, Chris Adrian was so important. Uh, now he's the king of Oxford real estate. You know, he's, he owns the whole game, but he was there in the beginning and he was really, he was the Frank Evie's guy and the Paula sentiments guy. And he was interested in bringing in that, that outside market. And then of course we were so lucky to have Susan Schreiber walk in and she's a legend in my mind. And, you know, but I think we tried to, you know, I know we did in the first few years, I think bake at times when he would come in, and want to, you know, order a box of number three pencils. And we say, well, you no, know, maybe, maybe we ought to hold off a month on that one. Let's not do that one right now. You know, but I think we were pretty good at shielding everybody from knowing what the situation was and what we had to manage our way through to get to. And so there was no question that the hardest thing for us ever to find were salespeople. And, almost like the jocks, the salespeople would even go faster to EBN or somewhere else because they could just pay more money and they were willing to do that. So those two folks are really important and uh, they, they, they made a huge difference in our station. Of course, that was my skill set. That's all I ever did in my life was sell advertising. So um, I was out there, packed my satchel and left and see what I could do. I might throw out in there that there there actually were some really nice bankers, too. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but we probably made some sort of impression on them when we talked about our, you know, what we were going to do in the future and all that. I I can't imagine, frankly, that they said, oh, well, this is going to be great and these guys are going to succeed. But I have to say they really gave us a hand when money from the bank was very much needed. And I'll never forget the fact that that happened for us, which is also good. Yeah, they were all good, but one. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. No, no, they were. We we were lucky, and it, it was an second national, and then U.S. Bank, who you know we've been with for a long time. But it was one, and that was that was the stage, and that was after the format when we Linda and I went in to extend our line of credit for I don't know the umpteenth time, and the guy that had been there was an Oxford person who happened to be in Rotary and everybody knew him. And he was, he was the community banker and a wonderful person. And, you know, he'd, he'd, you know, do farm loans or he would do whatever. And, you know, we'd been working with him and he, he takes another job. And, and I think the U S bank or somebody bought the, the local bank. And so we have a meeting with that banker. I can see his face right now. And, came and said, well, we've talked to the loan committee and we're extending your line of credit, but it's for the last time. And the people that were on the loan committee said they saw what you and Linda did in Chicago and we think you're crazy for what you're doing. And that was sort of like the moment in time that Linda and I knew the clock was ticking because we had, we had spent our money 
And it was only the bank now that could help us. So we, we fortunately, it all came together. But nobody realize, realizes it was probably in the ninth inning with one out. Then who, who hit that home run in the ninth inning with, with one out? You know, who, who knocked it over the fence to keep the future of rock and roll the future of rock and roll? Wow. That you know, I, I I avoid using that. That's a good question, but I, it, it was you know a collective effort. I guess we were starting. You know, when you stop and think, and you know, this is not something you're necessarily going to ask, but um, you know, there were a number of people who were with us for like 20 years, and that was you know the John Dickerson at Budweiser, 20 years, Pat Pauling at McDonald's for as almost as long, Al Porcelob at Bogarts. Marilyn Kirby and everybody's records and, and Cobra, all the many people I worked with. So there were a lot of people who started to, for any number of reasons, and maybe it was just to reach the college market or maybe they felt sorry for us, but we started to get a little bit of traction. On, and we also started to learn how to sell. We never had ratings. You know, you so say you stop and think a station without ratings after 23 years got paid attention to locally and regionally and nationally on a very consistent basis for about 18 years. So we got a handle of how to translate or interpret, persuade, cajole. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't send them on trips and give them televisions like some people did. So we just learned how to do it. And, uh, and then the station, because of the people and what they were doing was getting better and better. And so, um, it, it it did happen, so it wasn't like a person or a moment. It was just an evolution. And harder you work, the luckier you get. Although, as an entrepreneur, for three years or four years, you get no luck. But after that, it, you get a little bit of that, too. And that concludes episode number one with 97X owners Doug and Linda Baylog. Stay tuned for episode number two when we answer the question, uh, is Talawana closed today? 97X. Rock and roll always endures. Unlike my prostate. Rumblings from the big bush.